Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Women Who Rock Investigate, an affiliate of Women Who Rock with Success. We report case studies in the areas of policy and government, medical malpractices, health pandemics, biotech and fracking, global climate change, prison, and police reform, and more. Our topics are covered around the latest breaking news reports in the U.S. and around the globe. We can be heard on Spotify, Google Play, Google Podcast, TuneIn, iTunes, Podbean, Airtime Pro, and Sam Broadcasting Radio Stations, and more. Our hand-picked experts on the show provide credible information from their fields of experience. Join us on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time as we discover the latest in news reports. Now join us live in the studio with our show host, Mrs. Diane Winbush. Communications Commission podcast guidelines. The views and opinions expressed by our guests are their own, and their appearance on our digital media platforms does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. All guests who embrace our media stations are experts who are licensed in their fields of occupation. All rights reserved. And good morning. This is our second time on Women Who Rock Investigates. And so um, on our second segment, we're going to be talking about correcting treatment in corrections. And so uh, we know that for the last couple of years, we have had a lot of outcries, a lot of chaos in the areas of um, law enforcement, um, how individuals are treated, uh, protests, uh, you know, especially with uh, brown color, uh, African-Americans. Um, it's just been a lot of injustices and a lot of discomfort. So today we have on the show um, two individuals that is going to, and they're authors, and they're going to be able to address some of the concerns that uh, that we have seen in the media, and it's none other than former lieutenant of the Department of Corrections, Michael Johnson, and also licensed clinical social worker and co-author, and as well, uh, Michael is also the uh, co-author of this book, Correcting Treatment in Corrections, and she is none other than Rhonda Champagne, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. So good morning, everybody, and welcome to the show. Good morning, and thank you for having us. Yes, thank you, Diane. And you did pronounce it right. Okay. It is Rhonda Shane. Okay. So we're going to start with you, Rhonda, and then we're going to let Michael introduce himself. So we're going to um, start with you and share with the audience as to what you do, your profession, and what was your take on this book. Um, so I am a licensed clinical social worker, and I have a private practice uh, here in Montana. Um, I wrote... Uh, co-authored the book with Mr. Johnson because we uh, implemented a trauma-informed treatment program inside a prison, um, inside the Department of Corrections here. And um, it was a hugely successful program um, Mm -hmm. that really, you know, took the time to delve into the women, it was, you know, a program for women, and it, we took the time to delve into addressing the underlying uh, problem of trauma that is often masked as an addiction issue. Um, so we developed a treatment program, and it was hugely successful and then abruptly closed by 
the Department of Corrections, which led us to okay. try to understand why. Okay. Okay, Michael? Yeah, sure. So I was the lieutenant at the correctional facility here in Boulder, Montana, and Ms. Champagne was hired to implement a trauma-informed um, treatment program. We were holding adult females from the prison and jail systems of Montana, and all the research-based studies shows that there's underlining trauma that is the foundation of addiction and criminal behavior. So Montana was trying to treat this trauma. And when Ron, when Ms. Champagne arrived at my facility, I've had over a decade of training as a Department of Corrections staff of, of how to keep the environment safe. Um, things like implementing strip searches, um, being aware of inmate manipulation. And when Ms. Champagne brought in her curriculum for a trauma-informed program, what I found is that it went against just about every single corrections policy or procedure that I'd ever been trained on. We had arguments about strip searches right in the beginning. Um, I believe the strip searches were necessary in order to keep the environment safe. And she said, you are implementing trauma and we're here to treat trauma. So the book really covers a dialogue format between Rhonda, the therapist, and me, the lieutenant in charge of security, and all the many, many controversial issues between the person who is representing corrections policies and procedures, that's me, and then Rhonda, who's representing a treatment culture and ethics, and the two are like oil and water, is what we found. However, okay. we did manage to, to uphold a safe and secure environment without doing one strip search. And it was just incredible for me. In the nearly three years the program was up and running, I was absolutely amazed at how the trauma-informed culture can actually provide a safer environment than the power and control um, approach that corrections often takes. And I really got to know the women that came there for treatment. I was um, absolutely floored by some of the things that they had experienced, the traumas that they experienced. And in my past years of corrections, I never really got to know the inmates, as I call them. Um, our, our program, we, we call them residents. But it was just an amazing experience for me to, to really understand that people, people have gone through just atrocious traumas, and, and it really makes it easy to understand how addiction comes into their lives and even criminal behaviors. And so we wrote this book because we would really like to see more trauma-informed approaches in our corrections. Rhonda and I believe that the recidivism rates are so high because we're not really providing good treatment. Our treatment centers in corrections are, are, are buildings that are built like prisons. They're operating under prison policies and procedures, but our treatment results, recidivism rates are high. Our, our program had very low recidivism rates, and it was all attributed to this trauma-informed approach that we took on, but it was not easy. Um, it went against, like I said, just about every policy or procedure that I was ever trained on and and responsible to uphold. <clears throat> okay. Okay. Okay, great. Okay, so now this question is for Rhonda. Take it now, and, and we don't have to just delve into the into the topic, but um, it would be able to help. Uh, it was a... It was a 
somewhat of a neutral, and some people were uh, biased, and some people were um, kind of um, offended, uh, even with the death of Lisa Montgomery. She is the lady who was just executed uh, yesterday or a couple of days ago. Uh, And so with this type of issue that happened to her, I think it was some issues that came up, say that she was, you know, perhaps maybe uh, abused herself or she went through some type of abuse. Some people were sympathetic with her and some people were not. How would this treatment would have helped her if, her institution would have gotten a hold of that? Um, Well, first off, I'd have to say I apologize for not being familiar with the story. Um, But if you're talking about, yeah, and if you're talking about a woman who who had abuse, um, what we understand about trauma on a subconscious level is that it, it instills um, some beliefs about the South uh, that, you know, where people will walk away from that believing that they are bad, that they are no good, that they are, you know, mm-hmm. subhuman or less than human. And we know that we can't operate much outside of our belief system. And oftentimes, um, or, you know, I would say most of the time, at least here in Montana, that when someone is incarcerated, they are, you know, that belief that they are subhuman or or less than, or a bad person um, is instilled in them on a daily basis simply by, you know, the AOL numbers that they're often, you know, used to, I mean, they don't, many places don't use their names or they call them inmates or, um, Mm -hmm. you know, negative kind of connotations like that. And then all that does and the treatment and being locked up and not being able to see your family and not being, able to move in society and different things like that. All that does is reaffirm the belief that there's something wrong and that we're, we're bad. And therefore when, you know, if you Mm -hmm. spend any lengthy time under those kind of circumstances, you're going to operate that way because that's your belief that you take on. So a treatment facility would start at the core of the South and really understanding that, you know, oftentimes people who are are abused or have trauma, it's not by their own will or anything that they've done. Oftentimes it's been done to them. And so just getting people to recognize that, yes, they are very human and that we are connected, um, I think would have, would have helped anybody in, in a situation. You know, you have to first see yourself as a positive person in the world before you can become a positive person in the world. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I I agree and so um so just a just a little bit of a history about her. It's not nothing that she's already gone. Bless her heart. Uh, it's nothing to be judgmental. So anyway, Lisa Montgomery was the lady who uh some years ago had went in and uh murdered this mother and then went in and cut the baby, the the mother was pregnant. I'm for sure eight or nine months pregnant, and Lisa, <clears throat> the lady that was executed, she went in and she cut the baby out after she had murdered uh, the mom. And so the I think the baby, of of what the article said is she the lady the the baby is still living today. It's just pretty sure she's grown. This is something that happened some years ago. But anyway, it was it was a lot that was going on with her 
you know, trauma uh, when she was perhaps a child herself. And so some of the some of Americans felt sympathetic for her as to why she shouldn't have been executed. And I think, uh, you know, they took it to President Trump, and, uh, and he kind of gave it a thumbs down and what have you. So, um, and I do think that therapy is very, very important. And so this is going to be my next question, um, you know, to Michael. With the topic that you all selected, um, corrections treatment and correcting treatment in corrections. So has this been applied to like wardens or to uh, perhaps maybe like a legislation so they can be able to get an eye on this and so they can be able to work a little bit more on the project that you all have written so diligently trying to open the eyes of the justice system in these areas? Yes, it's absolutely our our focus to make a, an impact at a legislative level. Uh, the Department of Corrections is so ingrained with policies and procedures that it, it it's we I write in the book too that I, I believe corrections as its evolutionary progress right now and corrections has been evolving over the hundreds of years. I mean we were using the pillory post and whipping inmates for for um, for reform and thinking that was a good idea. And we look back on those times and we can see it was just clear abuse. Uh, so how do you mm-hmm. how do you influence the Department of Corrections now? What's the next big evolutionary leap? Well, in our opinion, we believe it has to go through the legislative process. We have a website. It's www.correctingtreatment.com. And on that website, we're collecting emails for legislative action, and we've listed out, I believe, six points that we would like legislative action on. Um, And and it varies, uh, but we would really like the treatment centers, particularly, to be more trauma-informed. We would like the Department of Corrections to stop using treatment centers as punishment. And that's kind of what we're seeing at New Silver Montana, in my opinion. Our treatment centers are built like prisons. They're operating under prison policies and procedures. And they've got maybe an LAC on the payroll and a treatment sign out front. But it, it's really not its not treating the person in their mentally, emotionally, physically, and hopefully spiritually. It, it's treating them like inmates. So we've got we to recognize that our treatment centers have high recidivism rates for that reason. And the only way we're going to get real change is through legislative action. We need people to take the time to read the story support trauma-informed treatment so that we can really reduce recidivism, bring people back into our communities. I'm telling you, people just need some help. They have been through some things mm-hmm. that, um, and we, we cover some of this in our book, some of the traumas that these women have endured in their life. You, you, you stop asking yourself why they're addicted. You stop asking why they broke the law, and you start saying, my God, if I was in that situation, I I would make bad choices as well. I mean, who wouldn't? Mm-hmm. It's just unbelievable mm-hmm. um, the things that people have gone through. And I, I would hope our next evolutionary leap in corrections is really recognizing the person and not so much what they did, seeing them for who they can be, not for just that one incident that they did, um, and, and understanding why. This is how we're going to reduce the overcrowded prisons. I mean, America is just... We've got the most incarceration out of all the other countries combined. We're, we're making a mistake. Mm-hmm. And, and trauma-informed treatment is 
going to be a huge, huge contribution to helping people overcome their addictions and reduce their criminal behavior. And Diane, I'd like to add to that that, you know, I don't know what what it's like in, in other states, but I can tell you that in Montana, the top 10 um, reasons why people go to prison in the first place are related to addiction. And so when you look at that from a clinical perspective and a treatment perspective, most of those people don't belong in prison. They belong in a treatment facility that where they can actually get some help. Absolutely, absolutely, which is going to bring me to the next question. I would like to share a brief story with the both of you. And um, this uh, uh, ex-former resident, they call him guest resident, Offender. So what happened was she went through, she 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 went through a very very uh, now she keep in mind she's already kind of probably twenty percent mentally challenged twenty percent that's that's not a lot but once she got into one of these treatment centers and she was on the show too uh, back here about uh, th- uh, three or four months ago probably and so they did some very horrific things. To this lady, it was supposed to be there to, and I can't call out the the prison uh, name. I don't want to do that, but it was in uh, the state of uh, Missouri, if I'm not mistaken. And she went in there, and 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 okay. And if you already know that the person has a hyper they they're hyper, they 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 uh, bipolar. She was diagnosed as bipolar, not by that institution, but way before she even got incarcerated. And they would go in there and push her buttons on purpose, push her buttons. And so when she went into the shoe, that's what they call it in the state of Missouri. We call it segregation in Tennessee. That's where I'm at. And when she went into the the shoe for 30 days, I don't know what she done, they cut the woman's hair off. They cut off the woman's hair. How can you cut off, and, and this is not something that I'm fabricating. This is not something that I'm bringing up on the show and allowed her to share her. She showed, She sent the pictures to my address. I saw her hair when it was long when she went in there. When she went into the segregation area, the woman's hair was cut off. And I'm not for sure as to how institutions are getting away with that type of treatment and behavior. That woman was traumatized. She went, she sent me the whole paperwork. I think it was about 700 pages. Of course, I couldn't read it all, but she had uh, reached out to the legislation, uh, uh, legislative uh, platforms as well, too, to talk to them about what was going on at this mental institution. It was a prison, but it was supposed to be treating the, the, the offender, the guest, the resident. And she went through a lot of things. So there was a, a clinical psychologist or social worker, just as yourself, Rhonda, that was um, um, assigned to her. And so after she met with her, there was something that happened between a lieutenant, this announced between a lieutenant and this offender. They know that she has bipolar anger issues. The lieutenant forced her to take off her clothes right in front of him. And the the social, this didn't happen no 40 years ago. This was, I think, a couple of years ago before she got released and, 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 and made, her, made her undress in front of the social worker, the clinical social worker, 
and the lieutenant himself, and then the social worker um, told, mentioned to her, say, look, I mean, mentioned to the to the staff, don't do that. You don't supposed to do that. But she, but the social worker never reported it. And so how is this is for Michael? I'm gonna to go to Michael on this one, and then you can comment it on on to Mike uh, Rhonda. But we're gonna to go to Michael first. How is it that the wardens, these institutions, are not paying attention to the to the behavior of these individuals that are in authority like that? This actually happened. I saw the picture. She showed it to me. She sent it to my house. Well, as you as you tell it, Diane, it sounds like a, a horrific act, um, and one that absolutely did not take into consideration this woman's mental health situation. Um, mm-hmm. Definitely is not trauma informed. Um, the Department of Corrections, again, it needs to evolve. It needs to grow. It needs to mature. It needs to learn. Um, but right now, I think we really classify inmates based off their behavior, and, and, and not enough effort is put into understanding mental health um, and trauma. So when Rhonda, when Ms. Champagne came in and, and implemented this program to me, she educated me on the um, SAMHSA, Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration. We ran and operated off of those guidelines. Now, let me say that again. Substance abuse... Mental Health Services Administration. We operated mm-hmm. off of those guidelines, not Department of Corrections guidelines, which okay. I think was a big part of why we got shut down. But when you operate under those guidelines, we absolutely were able to understand mental health and understand the people that are going through the treatment. And, and it, was, it, was, uh, it was far different than any other program that I'm aware of. The, the story you just told me is heartbreaking. I, I can't really speak mm-hmm. to, you know, the information about it, but as you reported, okay. it sounds horrific and it sounds like it induced more trauma and and I feel very, very bad. Um, that's why we need legislative action. If the Department of Corrections continues on its path, um, it'll take legislative action to to get them to separate and treat mental health more than a, a crime and understand it more. I just didn't know. Me personally, I had the DOC training, and that's all you have to go off of until someone like Ms. Champagne shows up and starts implementing SAMHSA guidelines as opposed to corrections guidelines. And again, I want to say, operating under SAMHSA guidelines actually provided more security than the power of control. These women respected my officers. They were called correctional counselors, but they respected them so much more because we didn't do things like strip searches. Uh, we didn't consequence mm-hmm. people. We, we worked from a therapeutic perspective on, on behavior. I mean, I'll tell you, when you have a lot of people, you know, that are taken away from their families, they're in a, in a housing unit, they're all sharing the same TV, the same phone. You're going to have some conflicts, you know, and that's not because they're bad people. If, if, you, if I was in there under those circumstances, I'd be having some personality conflicts with people. So the okay. management of it will switch from the power and control and the threatening approach of if you break a rule, you're going to be in trouble. We're going to consequence here. We're going to put you in your cell. 
you know, you're going to lose privileges. We switch from that to a relationship-based rapport. My correctional counselors, they conducted groups under Rhonda's supervision, of course, but they were involved in the treatment. And we had things like gratitude circles. This was just amazing. Every morning and every night before bed and first thing in the morning, we had what Rhonda Miss Champagne called a gratitude circle. And my officers would be engaged and involved in that. They would list off what they were grateful for. And it was amazing how as that relationship-based rapport took place amongst the residents and my officers, they began to be grateful for each other. It was really, I, I got goosebumps on my arm. I wish, I wish people could have seen it. I, I hope we describe it in the book well enough. But it absolutely was a life changer for me. Um, having, these, having everybody on the same page through a treatment approach actually maintained a higher level of security than I'd ever witnessed before. It was out of respect instead of mm-hmm. a threatening power and control. Absolutely, absolutely. I just uh, at, at the at the time I, I was able to work with the federal system from 2000 to 2010, something like that. My my take on on that was, why would I go in and be aggressive to them? So uh, their policy was, you have to write them up if you see them uh, smoking. You know, you have to write them up. You have to write them up if you if they're doing uh, things that. My take was on that. If I give you one warning, as you stated, uh, Michael, people will respect you if you stop the, and take the opportunity to explain, share, and talk to them. And that's what I would do. I would knock on the door, take the cover off your door, and I, and then after that, you know, Miss Winbush, thank you so much, and things. And then, you know, that that would my wouldn't be my perspective. I'm not offering. <clears throat> I'm not offering. Uh, reform if I'm always dictating everything that they're doing. That's what I thought, and that's one of the reasons why I had left uh, the the criminal justice area was simply because of the fact that I just did not like how things were. And so when I, when I saw what you had posted on social media, Michael, that's the reason why I dived in to see if I could get an interview with you because I'm kind of on the same perspective. You know, we respect them. Don't take their manhood away from them. Don't take their womanhood away from them. They're, they're still mothers. They're still fathers. They still have children on the outside. Treat them as, a, uh, you know, as respect and let them do their time in peace. That was my whole thing with that. And so I took as long as much as I could take. And it wasn't that bad working with the federal uh, part of it. It wasn't that bad. It was just still some it was still a couple of bad apples that were there. So I, it was just something that I was not, I felt that was not doing its job. If I'm hired as a counselor, I'm supposed to see results. If I'm hired, if, if, if there are, uh, are counselors and, and uh, social workers there, they're supposed to be results. But no, sometimes the wardens would pull the individuals that were there to help them in reform they would be doing something else, answering the telephones or something, or picking up the mail or going to the post office or something like that. They never did allow the individuals that were hired to actually effectively do their job. So I just wanted to kind of interject and put that in there, uh, you know, to be able to share that. So the next question is going to be for Rhonda. Take us uh, through the preface and maybe the first two chapters a little bit briefly 
about the book and, and, and what it will reflect to the readers once they get their hands on this book? Well, so maybe I should take this one. I don't want to take it away from okay. Miss Champagne. I'm 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 seeing her her facial expressions. The, your question, the first two chapters. What is the reader going to acknowledge? What the reader is going to find out is that we wrote it in dialogue form. It was really difficult. On we we spent two years writing this book, and at first we were just writing and both talking about the same thing, but it wasn't driving right. So we moved into a dialogue form. It's almost kind of like reading a movie script. But within the first two chapters, basically the readers are going to absolutely hate me um, because I am defending a power and control um, over decades of, over a decade of training from corrections, which, which is teaching me and training me that if I don't do these things, people are going to get hurt. If I don't, implement power and control, there will be fights, you know. So remember, this is a training. So the first two chapters, most readers that have empathy for people who are incarcerated are not going to like me. But we want the reader to be able to go through the debate. And then you have, so you have a lieutenant and you have a therapist, and they're going back and forth over the issues, things like strip searches. Or things like writing them up or having an extra sugar packet. All the control factors that I have. But then into chapter three and four, you'll start to see a transition on my part. I start to see these women as women. I start to see them as victims um, through their traumas because we're engaged and we're part of the program. And by chapter four, um, I, I, I completely turn around. And that's, Diana, I too had to walk away from my career in corrections. I had a good job. I was eight years out of my 20-year pension. Um, I, I've been highly criticized for walking away from my career, but this experience at the Riverside Trauma-Informed Program changed my life. I, I just couldn't see the inmates the same way anymore, um, as in those people that were dangerous. So anyway, um, by Chapter 5, then we have to go into the closure of Riverside, and the program was abruptly closed down with very little warning, um, and it was basically closed down because nonprofit organizations were, were threatened and their, their population numbers were dropping because of our program's success. And as a result, the department, with the contracts with these nonprofit organizations, they shut down a program that was reducing recidivism and actually really helping people get back in the community and helping them overcome their addictions and their, their criminal behavior and their traumas. Our success got us shut down, in my opinion. And so then there's a, a and Ms. Champagne and I, we delved into the, the, the contracts in Chapter 5, legislative audits in Chapter 5. We source all our information. Um, all of it's footnoted, and any reader can go to it and read exactly where we're getting our information. But we got a real problem here with America's Corrections. We really do. And I, I think on a number of levels, but I try to only speak to my experiences and and my little piece of the pie, which is trauma-informed treatment. It's it's correctional counselors, not correctional officers. It's it's mm -hmm. achieving safety and security without a strip search. And you still can. I witnessed it. I experienced it. I didn't believe it would work. I didn't in the beginning. All my training told me it mm -hmm. wouldn't work. But this, this story, Correcting Treatment in Corrections, our book, is about a transition from a 
in my case, the lieutenant who's kind of based off power and control and, and um, understanding trauma-informed and, and the success of the program. And then unfortunately, the closure of it was <sighs> devastating, you know. And it's why we need people to. It's why we need people to to look at the website and advocate legislatively because we really want to make a change in how the system is operating. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, uh, the, 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 so I don't know. Let, let's see. Well, let's put the question like this too, uh, because a lot of times we 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 look for we look for the answers as to why people do not receive what is right. They'll they'll run to what is wrong, but they won't receive what is right. So what about okay? So in, in this particular uh, situation, it was a judge, okay, and so his daughter apparently had overdosed in regards to substance abuse okay so out of all of the offenders that would come through his courtroom and <clears throat> he's a retired judge today and everybody that would come through his courtroom that, that that sold drugs they got the hammer but no one spoke up the federal marshals never spoke up no one knew no one i mean we knew it and 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 they knew it and he knew it but there was nothing to correct this judge there are individuals that are behind bars that he have given hundreds of years to simply because of his daughter being on substance abuse and also succumbing to substance abuse. So anyone that came through there, he just went in there and slapped the gavel on them. And so I think that all of it needs, starting with the, with the court system, they need reforming. It needs to be, that shouldn't have never allowed to go on like that. And he sat on that bench for about 30-something or more, 30 or 40-something years. So I think that the justice system needs it, the court system. Of course, we, we have turned uh, uh, prison systems now into a business. We all know that. Everybody knows it. Everybody's talking about it. The attorneys are talking about it. We've had this discussion before on the show as well as to people are, are benefiting financially. That's the reason why they don't want your book. They're not going to. They, they don't want the, this book, uh, Correcting Treatment in Corrections, they don't want that to come forth because that's going to cut off, uh, uh, you know, their taxpaying dollars as to what they get from the, you know, from the taxpayer of funding prisons and funding offenders and funding all of these things. They feel, feel that's going to cut them off. So in regards to that, uh, what are some things that you would like to leave with the audience, both of you? One of the things that I that I would like to leave the audience with is um, I'd, I'd like to, I mean, a huge part of the reason why I wrote the book is because I want the average person out there to really understand and recognize what the system does to people, right? And, you know, when you treat somebody less than human and then have this expectation that they're going to get out there and do great things right after you've sat with them for a long time in treating mm -hmm. them poorly they're just not going to be able to and the other thing that i want the people to become aware of is how the system is geared to itself i mean i hear all the time that 
that, you know, I was on a panel the other day and one of the judges here in Montana was very frustrated because the prosecuting attorneys come in there recommending very lengthy sentences to people and he wanted to reduce some of those sentences. I don't know how that whole system works, but I know that police officers can no longer just go to a residence and figure out what's going on. That they, you know, that if they get called on a domestic dispute, somebody's going to jail. That's their the rules here, and so they don't get to decide. They don't get to think for themselves. And it appears to me like, you know, prosecuting attorneys are overwhelmed. For for certain public defenders are absolutely overwhelmed. They don't even get five minutes with their clients before they're representing them in a courtroom and it just appears mm-hmm. to me like the system is running itself and that people and the, the thoughts the thinking you know the ability for people to think outside of it is more narrowed and more narrowed and more narrowed all the time and so you know what the fix is I don't know but our system is not working you can look around and you can see that more and more prisons are being built and oftentimes those prisons are, are disguised as treatment facilities and they're really not running what I consider is a accurate treatment facility and because people are tired of building prisons, but we're doing it anyways under a big uh, guise. And so I just want to bring some awareness to the average person listening to please um, get a hold of your legislator and and if you want to really understand how proper treatment works, read, read the book because the book is about correcting treatment. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Michael? Well, I, I think Ms. Champagne said it very well. Um, my advocacy is absolutely for trauma-informed treatment. I saw it work. I did not believe it would work in the beginning. Again, because I've had over a decade of training and, and quite frankly, a level of brainwashing to see inmates as just dangerous people. And so my experience um, really led me to, to really understand more about the person behind the crime. And I watched it work in these women. I watched this trauma-informed treatment work. They became stronger mentally, stronger emotionally stronger physically, and some of them spiritually. Um, and, and this is the answer to draw, lowering recidivism rates. This is the answer to bringing people back into the community safely for everybody else. This is also, I think, the answer for a better tax dollars being spent. The treatment centers we have right now in America are not working. Most of them have extremely high recidivism rates. Um, our legislative audit here in Montana concluded a 14% success rate in our nonprofit organizations that are running treatment programs. 14%. That's a fail. And I, mm-hmm. my experiences have shown me that trauma-informed treatment is how you drastically improve that success rate. Um, I, I advocate for correctional counselors that are involved in the treatment aspects. No more people just sitting in the corner waiting to write somebody up, waiting to to send somebody to their cell or waiting to tackle somebody. Correctional counselors are involved in treatment. You don't need to be a therapist to be therapeutic. These, and my mm-hmm. correctional counselors were able to do that, but we had to go against just about every single policy the department had in place for us. And as a result, along with nonprofit organizations that are absolutely profitable, they're in a very lucrative business. Everybody knows it, like you said. 
that's what shut us down. And I just feel a strong pull that I need to, I need to fight for this. I saw it work. I saw those women become stronger than the traumas that they endured. I saw them become stronger than the addictions that they were tied down to. I, Our book is a step-by-step unfolding of how you do it right. Okay. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. And hopefully, if you if if you continue to to um, work with what is what it is that you have, the people will begin to see. Even though it may be the, not the norm as what we think and what have you, but that's that was my thing. Uh, you know, when I worked for corrections, I I, I would pat them down randomly. I wouldn't pat those people. Down. I would pat those people down just one. You know, sometimes you can take a person, like I stated before, you can take a person's manhood from them. You can take their integrity from them and things that make them feel less of, of a person of who they are and what have you and things. That's, I would think that would be the institution's job to shake down the place to make sure that there's no uh, certain uh, things there to be able to injure individuals. And so um uh, that's the reason why I, 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 I wanted this interview today, simply because of the fact so individuals can be able to look at an open, look at this situation in an open mind with an open view. So with that being said, um, tell the individuals, this is going to be our last question for the show, tell the individuals where they can be able to find the book and if, they, if you want them to be able to follow you on any social media platforms or if you have any advocacy um, uh, campaigns that you got coming up as far as you go into certain uh, schools or anything to be able to continue to uh, market and advertise the book to be able to make it make sure that it gets heard and make sure it's an, a success. You can be able to do that at this time. So um, anybody can order the book on Amazon just by searching the title, Correcting Treatment in Corrections. Uh, authors are myself, Michael Johnson, Rhonda Champagne, should pop right up. Uh, also visit our website, www.correctingtreatment.com. Um, sign up for legislative action. You can also view um, testimonies of the women. In our book, we also have testimonies from the women that went through our program. And you can hear from them what the program meant to them. You can also read a couple other staff members that wrote testimonies to the program and, and what they thought of it. Um, but Amazon is your, your basic um, place to order the book. There's a link right on our website, correctingtreatment.com, that'll take you to Amazon to order it. And there's a legislative action button there. And I would encourage and ask your listeners um, to please go there and click that button so that we can get a group of people that will help us make a change. And, Diane, I want to, again, thank you so much for having us on today. Mm-hmm. And thank you so much for taking the opportunity to come on to the show today. I mean, this is something that needs to be pushed. It's something that needs to be out there. It don't need to be shoved up under the bleachers or up under the, the kitchen stove or anything like that. This needs to be discussed. It needs to be out there where individuals can be able to get the, the tools and the resources as your perspective out is how you're presenting it to uh, your audiences of how to be able to correct this issue in corrections. So, again, we thank you so much for being with us. Uh, listeners, you have heard from Michael Johnson and also um, Rachel Champagne, and they brought to you 
as to some of the Rhonda. tips and tools and resources that are in the book. Rhonda, I'm sorry, Rhonda Champagne, I'm sorry, <laughs> and, 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 and brought these things to you so you can be able to learn a better, different view in the uh, Department of Corrections as to how we can stabilize things a little bit more better with our prisoners. So until next time, um, listeners, next Thursday we'll be back on the show at 10 o'clock a.m. Central Standard Time. Thanks again, guys, for being my guest. Thank you. Thank you.